You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. I feel that the Spirit wants me to preach this message exactly how I had it, but very gently. Because more than when I wrote it, I now feel that there really is some deliverance here on very personal level for people in the room. And so I'm going to limit the amount of examples I give because I'm asking you on an individual level to listen to this message. There may be some hidden things that are causing disruption in our life. And we've exhausted all the obvious reasons why we could be having some struggles And there may be a sense in which there's some not-so-obvious ones that will come out during the service. And so I want to preach this message with a little bit of a, just a quieter, a little bit more of a contemplative tone, which I won't do a very good job of. I just want you to know that right now, but I'm sure going to try. So we're going to just read the Genesis text, and then we'll go through the gospel text later on in the message. But this is the sixth day of creation, followed by the temptation of Adam and Eve in brief form. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, that's when he's about to give us a revelation of something that's not so obvious to us. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now keep in mind, we preach the seventh day first. So it's at this point that the Sabbath is instituted, and everything we're about to read happens during the Sabbath, because when the first Sabbath was instituted, it didn't have an evening or a morning. So it always is. So everything that happens in the entire rest of the Bible happens on the Sabbath. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And enter legalism because God never told them not to touch it. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And here's the tragic part. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Heavenly Father, we pray today that we will see Jesus very clearly. In your name, amen. You may be seated this morning. In our final sermon of Let There Be Rest, we end an entire summer worth of sermons on rest on Labor Day. This is the climax of being in, of having rest in and not from our work. Rest has to be something we are, not just something we do. Rest has to be a character trait more than time off. 
It's not less than time off. You need time off. It is okay to have time off. God commands that each week we at the very least take time off to think about him, to have hope in him, to contemplate him, to find beauty in him. But rest is more than just time off. Rest is the kind of people we should be, not just taking time off from work. This series sought to combat a non-Sabbath lifestyle where busyness is felt as a violation or an intrusion. We poured our heart out, did our best to pray and think and work through the seven days of creation and the seven miracles in John's gospel to help us not be the kind of people who feel that busyness is like somebody breaking into our house and stealing stuff. We don't want busyness to feel like intrusion or invasion because busyness, in most cases, is the product of being fruitful and multiplying. Busyness is the product of having a blessed life. Busyness is the product of having things to do in the earth, having responsibility. And so we don't want it to feel like a violation or an intrusion when something else gets added to your to-do list. And I'm not just talking about here. I'm talking about anywhere, anywhere at all. We generally start our week, and Monday you're like, all right, we can get to the end of the week. And then by Wednesday, so many things have been added in, and it just feels like the windows of your life have been broken into, and people have just came, and they just stole more time and stole more time. And it feels like an intrusion. We don't want that to be the case. This series sought to combat a non-Sabbath lifestyle where time away doesn't rot or become rotten. We've all had that time where we have taken time to ourselves. We've taken a break. Maybe it's a day, maybe it's a week, and somewhere in the middle of it, it goes from feeling good to feeling terrible. It, goes, it starts off well. I mean, for me, when I usually take a full day off, if there's not a lot to do in the morning, I love it. By noon, I'm starting to get antsy. By three, I start to feel like a loser. By four, I'm eating too much. I'm taking a nap at five, and then I wake up the next day like I wish I didn't take that day off. That was, you know, we want to make sure that when we have time away, we're good at resting. You don't just do it. You'll fade into the minutes and start to feel terrible. You need to, we need to actually be good at resting. And so this whole series was trying to teach us that we need to be taking delight. We need to be seeing nature. We need to be seeing each other's faces. Rest isn't just doing nothing. Rest is doing things because we want to, not because we officially have to. I remember one of the bishops that is part of my formation into my ordination said to me, what do you do for fun? And I said, well, this is confusing now because what I used to do for fun is read books and study and write and all this kind of stuff. And I said, now it's my job. And he said, oh, thank God. That makes it so much easier for you to enjoy yourself. And I said, how so? Like, I'm home. You know, we try to take Friday off together. My wife and I said, I'm home. And, you know, I, I ultimately I'm not doing the thing I want to do. And he said, no, no, you got it all wrong. He said, go into the office. I'm like, what? You're the worst bishop ever. He said, no, 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 no. Go there because you like to, not because you have to. It'll feel different. Pick up a book that you read for work, but pick it up because you want to, not because you have to. Not because Sunday's coming. Because you like to read that stuff. He said, rest. You could, you could landscape for a living and then love to garden on your day off. He said, it's about knowing you don't have to. Change my life. Change my life. This message opens us to the idea, listen, that hope is the Sabbath that we can have in and from our work. Hope is the best Sabbath word in theological language. Hope is what gives us rest in turmoil. Hope is what gives us rest when we're confused. Hope is what ultimately gives us rest when we're fatigued. If time off isn't giving us hope, it's just strangleholding us anyway. Hope is what we need. Hope is what the Holy Spirit is trying to breathe into our life all of the time. I'm telling you right now, I feel it in my spirit as I'm speaking, that the spirit while I'm talking wants to hover over some of you and breathe hope into your life. 
Because without hope, don't listen to any part of this entire series that we did for the whole summer. Hope given by the Holy Spirit as gift, not hope that you can conjure up, not hope that you can study out, not hope that's an intellectual argument, but hope that comes from you doing your best to be open to the Holy Spirit. Hope is what we need to really, truly be able to rest. So I want to look at the Genesis text. Day six of creation, we just read it. And there are two points of weakness that happen in this text. The point of weakness number one is the temptation for one more good thing. And point of weakness number two is the negative inevitable. We'll take the first. The temptation for one more good thing. Day one, God creates light. All of this happens before Adam and Eve wake up. When they wake up, God has given them light. God has separated the heavens from the earth and has himself become the presence in between the separation. He's created plants on day three and dry land. He's put the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky on day four to give us rhythms and not systems. On day five, he gave us the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. On day six, animals and humans are born. I think it's interesting just for a little like shout out, shout out to Christmas, that Adam was born on the same day that animals were born and Jesus was born in a stable. Just a little, little shout out there. What's that Netflix show, The Star? Joel Osteen's in it and a few other people. Jesus is born when donkeys and stuff are born. It's amazing. Adam wakes up in all of it. He says, I don't want to be alone. God says, let me take care of that for you too. Take a nap. Adam takes a nap. He wakes up, and now he's married. <laughs> all jokes aside about how God needed to put him to sleep in order to do this. Now, it's Adam and Eve, and he looks at Eve, and everyone needs to hear this. He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, which isn't to say I own you. Adam looked at Eve and said, there I am. I see myself for the first time. That is a huge difference from the way that has been taught. Husbands, when you look at your wife, you see you. Not the rest of you, not the part of you that was taken, not the little bit of you that now you have to exercise dominion over. You see you. Because when Jesus looks at his church, he sees him. I said I was going to be contemplative and quiet. They wake up with all that good. Every tree of the garden you can eat from. Do you notice at no point in the story does... The serpent need to get Eve away from the tree of life. It never even comes up. She's nowhere near it. She's near the wrong tree, and Adam is near Eve. He's failing, and she's failing. Satan's like, this is going to be easy. They're not even where they're supposed to be. They're over here. They're already 95% of the way to what I need to do here. And here's essentially what happens. R.R. Reno, a wonderful theologian, look him up, buy a book, read it. It's fantastic. He said, the ultimate temptation is the temptation to think we need to add one more good thing to our life. Just one more good thing. And the minute we get that, just one more good thing. And the minute we get that, and the minute we get that, And the beast of lust is never satisfied. It always wants, not a lot more, just... So many of us are exhausted in our life because we're tired of trying to get just one more good thing. It's a diss to everything else in your life every time. I just need 
one more good thing. Imagine I walk into Sophia's room in the morning, and when babies are sleeping, they are the best. <laughs> Adorable. And you look, tired yourself out. They end up, like, twisted all over, like, facing in a weird direction. Like, you could tell they played in the room maybe that night, and you didn't know. And you're saying, oh, my God, this child, amazing. The eyes, the cheeks. But, God, I need one more good thing. It's a diss every time. How does this play out in our life? We're going to look at our time, our talent, and our treasure. Our time. One more good thing with our time. The pressure for quality time and then more. Example. And if, if this is you, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is going to give you examples that I'm not going to give you. I have a lot of examples, but I'm, not, I'm going to give one. And then if it's you, something will make sense to you. I'm praying right now that there is a supernatural happening in every single seat of somebody who needs to hear this. And honestly, in every empty seat of somebody who's not here, I'm praying that there is a supernatural impartation there too. You're going to do most of the math. I'm going to give some examples just to get your brain moving. So time, pressure for quality time and then more. It happens maybe like this. You're sitting at a table and your family that you don't normally get to see all the time is there together. Just the worlds of busyness kind of worked out and there's everybody at the table. And you're sitting there like maybe walking into the dining room and you pause for a moment and you say, oh my gosh, thank you, Jesus. The sounds of laughter. Even when, you, when you're longing for something, even if there was bickering at the table, something about it sounds so holy and so right because it's happening at your table. And you sit down and you're passing dishes around and somebody says grace. And halfway through, this thought pops into your head. This should be happening more often. And all of a sudden, one more good thing just hijacked the entire evening. And now I'm more concerned with what I won't have tomorrow night at the table than I am able to rejoice over what's at the table now. One more good thing. With our talent, it pains me just to keep moving, but I'm going to try, okay? Talent, pressure for quality, ability, and then more. We wanna be good at what we do. We wanna be good parents. We wanna be good employees. We wanna be good at sports. We wanna have extracurricular activities. We wanna be healthy. And every time we get good at something, Every time we do something well, which happens once in a while, we sit there and in the middle of finally getting something right, you finally matured, you finally were able to do something in your life that you've maybe struggled with, and you get it right, and you realize, I think I've actually changed. And again, we've done a terrible job with this in the church. We beat ourselves up as Christians all the time. We never celebrate the success of God in our life, and we need to do that a little better. But when we actually grow and change, and we're in a moment where something just happened that you didn't have the bandwidth to handle before, but now you've had the bandwidth to handle it, it could be something at work, it could be something relationally, whatever it is, technical, sports-wise, whatever it is, the minute you get it right, there's that second of, I actually had a breakthrough, and then comes the voice. Imagine you would have gotten this right a long time ago. And do you really think you're going to be able to work that hard to get it right tomorrow? Just a little bit more strikes again. And instead of being able to celebrate one testimony, we're mourning the loss of past and future ones. Our treasure, not just money, stuff we own, things. Shirts, clothes, shoes, socks, money, stuff, watches. Pressure for quality freedom and then more. That's what money is to us, everybody. It just means freedom. The ability to have options. People with money have more options than people without it. 
I was talking to somebody this week. This is the example that I'm going to use. I was talking to somebody this week who has a good quality inside the edges income and budget. Not amazing, not impoverished, good quality, normal, put it right in the middle, income and budget. And they get a new car, and they're thinking about a friend that they have who's got a lot of money and is kind of a jerk. Anybody know anybody like that? They got a lot of money, and they still seem stingy and stuff. And this person said to me, you know, it makes me mad that somebody like that has an easier life than I do. And I, 99 out of 100 times would have agreed, and then it just hit me. I don't think that person does have an easier life than you do. Because when somebody isn't free, even when they have a lot, it's a miserable life. When you get the thing you've always wanted, and it doesn't give you the thing you've always wanted, where do you go? Just a little bit more makes everybody feel like they're impoverished. You could have millions or you could have hundreds, but if you're bowing at the altar of just a little bit more, everyone thinks they have nothing. The negative inevitable. So the first thing that happens in the garden is you just need a little bit more. God didn't give you it. He gave you almost enough. You just need one more good thing. And then there's the negative inevitable. Again, let's go back to this. All seven days of creation, perfectly put in order. If this was a romantic comedy, you know, like in a lot of good romantic comedies, just so you know, I love romantic comedies so much because I don't want my brain to break when I'm trying to watch TV at night. I want to see a nice, easy, kind of like easy listening sort of movie. And any movie that generally is about romance and starts with like Frank Sinatra playing and a view of New York City, I'm in. Like I'm just in at that point, right? So a lot of movies start out that way. You get that fun song, you get that shot of Chicago or New York City, and you just know, like, this is going to be great for a while, then some drama's going to happen, and then it's going to be great again, and you're going to go to bed in a good mood. There was zero of that in the Genesis story. Trees, fruit, light, a man who's alone, holy matrimony, and then disaster instantaneously. There are no stories of Adam and Eve even kind of living happily ever after. They get married, and the first thing they do together as a couple on their honeymoon is destroy the earth from top to bottom and ruin everything that God just created. What did you do for your honeymoon? We went to Jamaica. What did you guys do? We ruined the entire cosmos. We're, we're seeing someone. <laughs> The whole story in the Bible, our lives in real life, make it so that the negative inevitable seems so much closer to your back than the positive inevitable does. How do I mean? Time. Why work it knowing it's going to be stolen? Has anybody ever cleaned the house before? Has anybody woke up the next morning to find that some mythical creature came into that house and ruined all of it? How does a mom and a son both have their hands up right now in the back? That is a very peculiar situation I'd be interested in hearing about. You keep your car clean. You work really hard on it, and inevitably, a bird flies over it. <laughs> Pollen shows up. Whatever it is, you give your time to something, and it seems that what you worked on is easier for it to be inevitably wrecked than to wake up in the morning and come down to the house you cleaned, and it's cleaner. That never, no one has that story. No one. It doesn't get cleaner. The car doesn't look better because you drove to the city and back. 
we don't look better tomorrow than we do today. <laughs> it seems like the negative inevitable is always there. What about our talent? Why discipline ourselves knowing it will be stolen? You work really, really hard to capture the words that so readily want to come out of your mouth in particular moments of being triggered. And for weeks and weeks, maybe months and months, God never needed to use the bleep button in the movie of your life. And then for no apparent reason, something hardly even bad happens. It just happens. See, like when something kind of annoying happens at the wrong time, that's far worse than when something horrible happens that you know is coming. You don't figure out if you have rats in the basement by sneaking down the stairs. You figure out if you have rats in the basement by kicking the door open and running down the stairs. So God doesn't show you your heart by preparing you for something. He shows you your heart by letting something happen that you weren't ready for, and how you respond is your heart. That's terrible if that's true. I hope what I just said is not true. You work so hard to discipline yourself, to be respectful or kind or to work hard at work, and inevitably, it's so much easier to ruin the diet than it is to get better with it. It's so much easier, it's so much more inevitable that I'm eventually going to mess up. And usually when you say something with your mouth, what you took you six months to not do can be ruined in one word, one dehumanizing comment. And then the person's like, you hurt me again. And you're like, what about the last six months? <laughs> but it's true. A world of compliments on this side of the resurrection can be shattered with one negative one. And so you're just like, why even try so hard? And our treasure, why be careful knowing it will be stolen? You get that new car. You stay within your budget. You push back on that salesman who's trying to get you into that one more good thing, that one more good option on the car, that one more heated seats. Jesus, my life is terrible because my seats don't heat up when I get in the car. All right, well, neither did the cross when I was hanging on it, so have some real problems. You know what I mean? That was funny. <laughs> You're in it. You get that song playing because you love listening to your favorite song when you first get a new car. You stop at a red light like you're supposed to. Stayed in my budget, said no to the salesman who's Satan trying to get me to get heated seats in my car. I stop at a red light that I think I could have beat, and I stop, and then somebody runs me in the hole. Like, what is the point of trying? I saved money. I disciplined myself during Christmas time. I did all the things that I'm supposed to do, and one bill comes in, and it's all gone. What was the point of saying no to all those things? All the jokes aside, there's a graph that Ian and I worked on together. Whenever we pursue one more good thing, the negative inevitable seems stronger. Is everybody tracking with me here? It's just so obvious that the more we get, the more that negative inevitable seems to haunt. And it goes from silly things like cleaning the house to terrifying things like burying a loved one. This is, feels like a tragedy, not a romantic comedy sometimes when you read the Bible. And so I want to do something I don't normally do. I don't normally preach this way, but I'm going to now. The sixth day of creation connects, obviously, to the fall there in Genesis. And then the, so the, the sixth day of creation is the creation of Adam, followed by the fall of him. 
And then the final sign in John's gospel before the cross is, ironically, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Sixth day of creation is the birthing of a human. The sixth sign in John's gospel of the cross is the death and resurrection of one. So let's read the story of Lazarus together. And I'm going to pause at certain points to talk about how Jesus helps us in our weakness of one more thing and the negative inevitable. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Hear that. It's the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, who sacrificed her entire reputation on Jesus. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you see the inevitable? I gave him the alabaster box. I gave him all I had to live on. I sacrificed my reputation by loving him in front of other people who were just going to further ostracize me. We have walked with him. We've questioned ourselves with him. We've done everything we could possibly do to follow this man that right now is super controversial. It's not helping anybody in terms of our economic standing to follow him, but we've left everything and followed him. And now, after healing so many people, touching a coffin and having the child wake up, my payment for all of it is now my brother's gonna die. That inevitable is right there. It's right on the other side of our good deeds. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And here's how you express love. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Pause. I wonder if that works like at home. Can you take the garbage out? I love you. So I'm going to wait two days. I don't think it'll work. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. This is an important point. Jesus waits. How many know the parable of the wheat and the tares? An enemy sowed tares into the wheat. Should we try to pull out the tares? And the owner of the field says, don't. Let them both grow together. Because until they're both fully mature, you can't tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. And you might pull out the wheat when you're trying to get the tares. And so he says, let time go by. Because when the wheat has fully matured and the tare has fully matured, it'll be easier for you to know which one is which. So many of us struggle all the time. And we wonder why God's not delivering us from it. It's because he wants our sin to actually get more mature. So when he pulls it out, he pulls out the whole thing. And that we don't accidentally start rebuking a part of us that we think is the problem that really isn't. Jesus is what God is always like. And Jesus waits, which means God uses time. Time is actually a redemption tool that God uses to manifest himself in our life. So he waits because he loves. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, listen to this carefully. He said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Not a nice thing to say. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not going to make it to Lazarus. You're not going to be able to either wake him up or raise him from the dead, whatever it is you think you're going to do, because they're going to kill you on the way. But you know what? We'll go die with you. I've had this kind of argument at home sometimes, and sometimes a particular person at home will be like, you know what? We'll do what you do. We'll do what you think should be done here and fail together. It's fine. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We'll, we'll do it your way, and it'll turn out terrible. It's fine. That's what Thomas did. The inevitable. Let's go die with him. We've come all this way with Jesus, but now he wants to do this one more thing. Let's, let's just go die with him. Haunted by the inevitable. And Jesus hints that what they think is going to happen with Lazarus when they see him, he hints, he hints that what you think happened actually isn't what happened. Jesus' first response about what happened with Lazarus is that he fell asleep, not that he died. Mary and Martha are about to run out and say, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And it may be that Jesus is saying this that you thought happened actually isn't what happened. Let this mess with you. Let this freak you out, please. But Jesus only says he died because we can't understand when he said he fell asleep. So they're going to say, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus is going to say, if you heard me, he fell asleep. What you think is final isn't even close to the way that God sees it. Just let that hang there for a minute. We've all lost loved ones. Jesus is the Adam that has so much dominion that death is as sleep to him. They woke up. That's the dominion he has over death. Sophia, wake up. Don't fall asleep. It's getting close to your bedtime. I don't want you to fall asleep now and then be a terrorist for the rest of the night. Wake up. <laughs> Just putting it out there. They really thought Lazarus died. He was just Sabbathing for a little bit longer than they had wanted him to. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. If he was sleeping, he was like, thank God. This has been nice. <laughs> Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. One more good thing. Jesus, you have done so much. You have changed my life in ways that I can never even imagine. But if you would have hurried up and done this one more good thing, I wouldn't be dealing with the loss of my brother. We carry with us the one more good thing syndrome all the time. We can enjoy something until the one more good thing hiccup comes, and then we accuse the thing we were just enjoying. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Whew, that preaches, but we'll keep moving. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Everyone thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. But she was doing something that whether conscious or subconsciously, she didn't realize. But she was taking her grief, not to the place where her grief was located, but to Jesus. This is stunningly prophetic and amazingly accurate. Everyone thought she was going to the place where her grief should be located. 
but she was taking her grief from the place where it should be located, the tomb, and bringing it to the one where it really should be located. You are never wrong bringing your grief and your anger and your frustration to Jesus. You are never wrong for being angry at, cursing at, screaming at, ignoring because of your madness, God. You are never wrong for being angry at God. It takes a tremendous amount of faith and a tremendous lack of doubt to be angry at God and anchor into a relationship with him where you say, you know what, today we've worshiped, we've been intimate, but today we're going to fight. And he's as comfortable with that as he is when your hands are raised on a Sunday morning because you're making yourself present to him. You're allowing him to be him. And you're allowing yourself to be who he knows you are, which is finite and vulnerable. Any church that talks about anger at God as if it's a sin does not understand Jesus or the gospel or the scriptures or decent human decency. It is never wrong to be mad at him. It is always right to take any emotions you feel about him and bring them to him. It's an offering. He will receive them, and he will give you your anger back. And like the loaves and fish, he might give it back a little different. But it's never wrong. It is never wrong. It takes strength to be mad at God. It's not weakness. It takes weakness to walk away from somebody. It takes strength to stand there and say, we will fix this. But I'm upset, and I need to vent. That takes strength, not weakness. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus, the God life, is now experiencing in himself human inevitability. He's taking the inevitable into himself, and he's not grieving the loss of Lazarus. He's grieving the fact that we grieve. He's troubled over the fact that there's trouble to be troubled with. He's pulling our grief and our disillusionment and our lack of answers and our illogical feelings. He's pulling them into himself, and he's allowing himself to grieve our grief and be troubled with our trouble. This is why Mary runs to him and not to the tomb. She runs to Jesus, and Jesus brings her to a tomb because one day she's going to run to the tomb, and Jesus is going to show up there. But we need to see a Jesus who pulls into himself our fear of the inevitable, our despair over the inevitable, our frustration over the inevitable. Jesus pulls it into himself. He's not waiting over there for you to finally get over your fear. He's pulled it into himself. You meet Jesus in your fear now. You don't meet him when you get over it. You meet him in it so that you can have grace to get over it. There's a point where the church is taught you need to rebuke your negative feelings. You need to rebuke your fear. You might just accidentally rebuke Jesus because he's in it. He pulled it up into himself. So now when I'm afraid, I don't have to rebuke the fear. I have to say, Jesus, I know you're in it. Find me. Find me in my fear. That is for somebody in the room. Find me in my fear because I know you can enter my fear differently than I enter my fear. Come into it with me and find me and bring me out of it. But I need you to find me in it because I can't rebuke it. If I could, I wouldn't be feeling it right now. I love this. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. He lets us invite him to the place of our despair. He's interested. Where, where have you laid him? Where, you were so hopeful for your children, and that hope has been buried. Where would you lay it? You were so hopeful that you'd break through the emotional turmoil you've been living with. And now you've buried it. You've given up hope. Where would you bury it? 
you were so hopeful you'd break this addiction, but now you've buried the possibility that it could be broken. Where'd you, where'd you bury it? Let's go find it together. This is who Jesus is. He's not yelling. He's not saying you guys have made a covenant with death and don't realize it. He's saying, show me. Show me where you buried your hope. And they said, Lord, come and see. And you would think it said Jesus went, but it says Jesus wept because on the way, Jesus is pulling into himself all of the reasons why we bury our hope, all of the reasons why we give up, all of the reasons why. Because we, we give up when we have prayed for something, and it looks like that thing has now finally stopped being what we were praying it would be. And Jesus is saying, you think he's dead, but I've already told you he's only sleeping. You think the hope for your children is dead. It just fell asleep. You think they died and have rejected me. But that hope, because what did Jesus say before? Those who believe in me, though they die, will be raised. And then he said, those who believe in me and live shall never taste death. So what does he do? He makes a distinction. Some of you are going to believe me in this life before you die. Some of you might believe in me after you die. He cracks the door open that much for that hope. So even if life has ended for somebody you care about, Jesus is saying, hold on, not so fast. Not so fast. You never know. And as long as you never know, you don't stop praying. As long as you never know. Anyone see the movie Dumb and Dumber? I'll pull that right into this sacred moment. You ever see Dumb and Dumber? What are the odds of a girl like you dating a guy like me? I don't know, Lloyd. One in a million? So you're saying there's a chance. Then her husband shows up and he goes, wait a minute. What was all that one in a million talk? Jesus is saying, there's a chance. Keep praying. You feel like your hope is gone. It may have just dozed off for a minute. Where have you laid him? Come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Hmm. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. She just said to him, you know what? He's dead, but even if you ask things of God, I know that God will hear you. So she gives the illusion that there's a chance she thinks he might have raised, he could be raised from the dead by Jesus. And then when Jesus says, take away the stone, I think I want to do that. She says, no, 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 don't. We're terrified to find out that it's not going to work out. So terrified that we actually, once we lose hope, we don't want it rekindled because we don't want to have to go through losing it again. So she wants to say, she just wants to stay mad. Lord, if you had been here, he would have lived, and maybe you could still call him from the dead. She just wanted to say the right Christian thing, and Jesus says, you know what, you got a point. Let's go remove that stone. No, don't. But you just, just don't. Because I'm terrified that if you do, and he doesn't, and he's not alive, that second grief will be worse than the first. See how our human nature is just so broken. But what does God do? He never rebukes it. He just stays in it. Jesus just pastors and shepherds his way through this entire scenario. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I love when he does this. Thank you. When he held the bread... That wasn't enough for 5,000 people. He held it and gave thanks. He didn't ask for more. He gave thanks. And now standing at the tomb of a dead man, he doesn't say, Father God, in the name of Jesus, which would be weird. <laughs> he opens up the tomb and the stench of human rot fills his face. And he says, thank you. Thank you. 
man, oh man. Like, I, I might just be the only nerd in the room. This stuff gets me so excited. Where am I? Ah, Father, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I'm going to need to preach this text again. There's so many good things here. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a linen cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now we have to ask ourselves, what kind of Lazarus came out of the tomb? Not a new glorified one. Chapter later, it says that the Pharisees were seeking to kill Lazarus. Clearly, he's not new. He's the same Lazarus that could get sick and die again tomorrow. He's not Jesus after the resurrection. He's old Lazarus. He's still able to get sick and killed Lazarus. Otherwise, Lazarus would have been the first fruits of the resurrection. But who's the first fruit of the resurrection? Say his name confidently. He's the first fruit of the resurrection. So Lazarus wasn't a resurrection. Lazarus was raised to oldness of life. In Christ, we've been raised to newness, but Lazarus was raised to oldness of life. It's Lazarus can still die from the flu after he was resuscitated by Jesus. But Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Why is this amazing? Because Jesus is setting free even our brokenness to exist and still have hope. Jesus is looking at something that today was raised, that tomorrow could be back in there. And he's saying, loose it and let it go. Because if it goes back in there tomorrow, I can raise it again. And if it goes back in there tomorrow, I can raise it again. And if you lose hope tomorrow, I can give you hope again. We talk about ultimate hope that one day we'll all see and none of us can figure out, but we forget that there's daily bread of hope every single day that we can be raised in oldness of life just like one day we'll be raised in newness of life. What you failed in yesterday, God can raise. And if you fail in it again, God can raise it. And if you fail in it again, God can raise it. That's the rhythm of our life now. So Jen in the worship service said, I think there's a verse out there. And what she quoted was what the three Hebrew boys said to King Nebuchadnezzar. You're asking us to worship you. We won't. Throw us in the fire. Our God will deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're still not bowing. Hope is our Sabbath. Hope is our Sabbath. And just because something might not get raised perfectly yet, God can still touch it. Just because you might not fully break through doesn't mean you can't be on a steady course toward breakthrough. Just because you might get over it today and be back in it again tomorrow doesn't mean that Jesus can't take you right back to Lazarus' tomb again tomorrow. Until he comes back, he will always be touching the things in our life that we think most dead, and he'll be bringing us to them and showing us that what we think they are isn't exactly what they are. We think it's dead, but it might have just dozed off. We need a hope that's not just the ultimate one. We need a hope that's good enough for today too. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Jesus said, I've prayed out loud so that those near me could hear. And that's one of the reasons why we come to the table of the Lord with consistent prayers. Because you might not need them, but maybe somebody next to you needs to hear it. We're going to confess the creed. Maybe you don't need to, but maybe somebody behind you needs to hear you say it. If God himself says, I don't always pray because I need to, I pray because somebody needs to hear me praying, how much more might we pray, not for ourselves, but because someone just needs to hear us pray? I'm just asking that when you come to the table today, that you see the table as Lazarus' tomb because all it is is brokenness. It's broken bread and spilled juice. 
And never are we ever supposed to look at something that broke and see life or something that's been spilled and see life until we come to this table. Because when we come to this table, we see something that should be dead and stinky and all of a sudden, God is saying at the table, I'm loosing you and I'm letting you go. And I believe that that's gonna happen for somebody when you come to the table. It's the altar call of altar calls. It's the highest form of coming to the altar is coming to receive the meal where Jesus said, on your worst night, I have fully given myself to you. So that even though weeping may endure for this night, joy will come in the morning. So together, and maybe for the person next to you, let's confess the faith that saves us. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The Lord is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn and proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, even when we had been dead for four days in the tomb, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. I'm sure we've heard this. I was just reminded of a teaching I heard a long time ago where John's gospel is the new seven days of creation and Lazarus was in the tomb for four days and Jesus was in the tomb for, and he he completed the new week of creation. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your perfect will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take this and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, drink it to remember me. Therefore, in the midst of all of our ups and downs, we proclaim together the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension, we offer you this bread and this cup. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. Sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. 
All this we ask through your son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. And everybody said, when you come to the table, this is the one more good thing that we should all be reaching out for. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come and receive in your hand the one more good thing. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.